Hi guys, welcome back to this week's episode of the Mastering Agility podcast series. This show aims to inspire you and others by bringing in the best of the business. I'm your host, Sander Deer. If you like these episodes, please share them with your friends, your families, your colleagues, your dog if he's into that, but it really helps us grow this show. And I would much appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes, Podchaser, or from whatever platform that you're listening. People that listened before know that psychological safety is a common threat throughout these episodes where people feel comfortable, confident, able to bring their true selves to work. And today we're going to discuss that more deeply with serial entrepreneur, CEO, author, Forbes contributor, and much more, Duena Blomstrom. And we were already having such a great pre-discussion that we just forgot to switch from pre-discussion to actual recording. So we're just going to dive straight in. I genuinely think, um, and it's not only because we live in breath psychological safety, but because I think that there's a lever at the at the team level. Um, the number one thing we need to do is get back into finding ways to get that team psychologically safe. And it's like, it's crucial. It's like number one thing. It, it almost bedazzles me why, there's a lot of talk about it. For instance, if you go down episodes of IT revolution or any of the bigger conversations. There's not one that doesn't mention it. Oh, if you if you go to to Daz, every talk starts with we need to talk about psychological safety. But if you also look at the, at the same time in the same breath at the landscape, we're still the only company measuring it. It's like, but we're talking about it every day. Like how are we if we're not? So I think it's really bizarre to me what's happening in the community about that, in the actual Agile DevOps community. Mind you, I know what's happening at large about that. That's a very different conversation. Um, but in our community, I think what's happening is superhero fatigue. Um, there, there's a handful of people, maybe a hundred people in the world that really have everything clear and straight in their head, right? And they are distributed in different enterprises and as the great resignation happens, as COVID happens, whatever, they, they just like, they really try, they really try, and then all of a sudden they go, like, you know, fuck this. And then it, that enterprise can't really get through kind of delivering anything. And if very rarely, and we have tens, hundreds of customers and prospective customers, and it's almost mathematically the same story. Obviously not something necessarily to tell you on camera, but the, the journey we've had over the last two years and a half is shocking how what the commonalities are, which are this typically mid-sized big organizations. Um, let's do agile. We need it so that we make X tech product. Um, starts however it starts, however it, it carries on, that's irrelevant almost. But they they'll always have one or two of these really true superheroes. I don't mean the guy that brought it in. I don't mean the guy that's paying for it, but just people that are living and breathing agile and they, they can totally, you know, keep their mind on the people work and so on. And they, when we meet those people, they go like, oh my God, an actual tool. I can actually measure the psychological safety thing and I can make more of it, like totally give it to me. And they are like, <laughs> we've, we've learned over the years to never care about the first and the second conversations because people are just so bloody excited that it's happening you'd think we are ubiquitous in fedex and whatever like everyone in the and and multiple times it happens so i was saying i'm feeling bad that 
they they get super excited. They go, what? Well, this, this makes perfect sense. Like strike all of your L&D conversations, strike all of your, strike all the other things. This is the thing we need. This is the thing. Put them. So they go with it to, if they go with it to their team, their team goes, and it's even worse because they see their team getting excited and going like, oh my God, this is a thing. We can do this. And they see actual numbers grow, going up in terms of psychological safety. And then they see that reflected in their KPIs, in their throughput, in their whatever it is that they're measuring, right? So they're like even more excited. Then they take those numbers to internally to HR or or a CEO or some, or some CEO, and they, they are stunned by the worlds they run into. And sometimes they try so many times that, as I said, they eventually go like, you know what, F this, I cannot. And we, we literally have a trail of of superheroes and advocates we have left in our wake. And I, I feel horrible because it's not useful to us. Not use, it's probably useful to them because they, they tried all that exercise and then eventually they, they go to a better place where it's not that, that painful. Um but I just, I don't actually know what to tell you what the answer is. Because if we keep losing superheroes as well, on top of everything else, us as organizations, us as the agile world, I don't actually think that these things can be driven. And I don't think we have enough momentum at the team level that we can leave without these superheroes still pushing, you know? No, I agree with that. And I think that has a little bit to do with our pre-discussion, pre to the recording itself, where... Um it has a lot to do with the job that you're hired for. And um, we were discussing putting this into the job description as well. Right. I mean, you mentioned people are hired, for instance, to do Java and they're going to stick to doing the Java thing. But we rarely discuss, I mean, at least I've never encountered it so far, what's going to be my impact on the team, what I'm hired for, and what's expected of me to work on team dynamics. What would your ideal situation be with this? My ideal situation in a world where our kids are going to go into an agile team is when they are told, we expect you to code for 50% of your time and to look at yourself and other people in the team for the other 50% of the time. Maybe not, maybe that's not the right proportion. I don't know what the exact proportion is, but undoubtedly people need to be told from the beginning, look, this is not a one and zero job. This is a one and zero plus the dynamic of your team job. So I need you to recognize things in yourself. I need you to see things in others. I need you to do physical, not physical, but exact work on the team. I need you to have times that you do that, that you prioritize tickets, that your scrum master goes, no, we cannot, even you can't get another ticket. You've never spent 10 minutes meditating or you can't pull this one PR request because we never had that team action that all of us, where we talked about our kids, Whatever it is that that team needs so that they grow, so that they tighten. There, first of all, there are the, the work on the team is huge. There's so much to be done. There's so many things we have to learn because no one went through school and came out of it being a specialist on what emotions are or how to deal with the emotions of others. So we have to make that up, that lack of education up, that lack of habit up. We have to then um, kind of pick up the ball on it and start kind of making it into a practice and not understanding that it's useful and we are remunerated for it. We are, we have permission and we are supported in doing it. So as I said, ideally in a world in where we are serious about the people work, we, we will be faster and more performant. It's almost like anything else that you do that's just doing a ticket that's technical or just doing an operational bit or a logistics bit is 
irrelevant in the grand scheme of things because it's not going to keep you moving. It's not going to keep you performing. It's not making you sustainable. It's only fixing that one ticket. So ideally, we would make the human work central to our work or at least very firm part of our work. Ideally, we would then start splitting into what does this mean to us, right? What what are the what are emotions like one on one? What are emotions? What do I feel? What do others feel? What are the components of a good team? What do we need to see happening between us? We need to be flexible. We need to be learning. We need to be open. We need to be emotionally tied with each other. Those are things that when you split them like that, you can then work on them just in the same way that you would stop smoking or you would be able to not be afraid of spiders. Whatever it is that you need to work on can be worked on once you have separated it and accepted you have to do the work. So it's a big ask. These are people, again, that we have put through school and then paid so that they do something else is what they think. But realistically, no one can fix these things for us. It isn't something that HR could, they could help. They can be supportive. They can give us materials. They cannot be in our heads and, and make us in that meeting remember that this guy in the corner is now seething or this other person just wants us to all die and it's never going to happen without that. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's very, every day that happens, right? In every team. So if we ignore it and if we don't start doing this human work at the team level in a conscious fashion, we're not going to get very far. Do you feel then that, for instance, any organization should have a therapist or a psychologist as part of uh, the offer that they get, because especially in in a more macho culture, more male dominant culture yeah. where emotions are not easily shown, people are very reluctant to be open about feedback, things that they like, as well as get really honest giving fee uh, giving feedback and receiving feedback. It's a hard thing to do, and it took me personally a while for really a to be open to myself and to see myself or the way that I act and the way that I act towards others and the, the way that I am perceived by others, it's a hard thing to do. And we're not going to get out of that, that whole embodiment until we have a specialist working on that. And that's not, for instance, someone that's, uh, that's an agile coach or someone else. Therapists, on the other hand, are more specialized on that. I, I don't think so. I don't think we need a therapist. I think we need all of us. And when I say we, I mean me, you, developers, every project owner, you name it, right? Everyone. We need more willingness to say, what all do I need to learn so I can do this thing myself? I am a big believer in the fact that understanding your emotions and the emotions of others is not requiring a PhD, is not requiring a special, is requiring enough open-mindedness to go like, what all do I need to learn? And then kind of, I don't know, a month of looking at these things in, in detail and then the other month to make it into a habit. I genuinely think it's really that simple and it takes willingness. So I think I've seen this and not that I think I've seen this every team we work with who ends up using our tool starts from a place of this is not for me. I am not a mini psychologist. Why are you asking? Me? <laughs> I hate this. I, and look, we sympathize with them. I'm I'm non I'm non neurotypical. I'm on the spectrum. I hate every bit of small talk. Every piece of conversations with humans is difficult. I get precisely how developers feel, believe it or not. I completely get it. I empathize completely. That said. It's, it's something that can and should be worked on. 
and it gets better instantly as soon as you start putting the work into it. So we've seen teams go from, as I said, no, no, absolutely not. I am busy. I am booked. I am doing important things. I am not in the mood to be doing things that some other people should be. Someone should come down and make me feel better. Someone should come fix our team, not me, because I have another day job and look at all my to-dos, right? But once they, and as I said, that's what we call the team resistance. Once they get over it, and I firmly believe the only thing that gets them over it is one, showing them data, which is why our dashboard is practically just throwing data at them. This is how you're doing on flexibility. This is how your team is doing on learning. So very clear numbers and data that they can see going up or down. And secondly, and most importantly, giving them the tools to do this work themselves. Because these therapists that you're, you're mentioning, they haven't, it's not like they, you know, they have this mythical knowledge or some ring they kissed and then now they can kind of, <laughs> they, they're literally right. using these tools that you and I can use just as well, right? So as soon as you give people data and tools, and they start going like, oh, my God, I am a mini psychotherapist despite being a Python developer. I didn't know this. I can fix myself. I can fix you guys. We are now more performant. As soon as they see that feedback loop closing and they see performance increasing because they've worked on the human work, that's what makes it stick. That's what makes people willing to keep doing it. So, yeah, I don't think we need a therapist. We just need to put more work into it. Yeah, and that's going to take a while because it's really easy to play the blame game. It's it's always the other one's fault. It's never my fault, and it's it, you know it's it's really easy to just throw things over the shed and oh, all right and now it's my neighbor's issue and it's not mine. Um, to really have that introspective level is very uncomfortable, Duena. Very very true, and and we are again very sympathetic to the plight. It's hard. It's very hard, but it is hard in every other self improvement work anyone is doing. Right? It's not easy. No one kind of goes into the gym one day and comes out with a six pack and a bicep. doesn't work like that. It's a lot of work. Anything that we want to make better takes work and is difficult, but we do it because we know what the benefits are. Equally, we're going to do the human work when we're going to see the benefits translating into our performance. And incidentally, we will care enough about that performance that we would want to be putting all the investment. So I truly believe people who have taken Agile to heart are a special breed of people. They, they, they have the need for growth and self-improvement in build. So we don't need to spend a lot of time going like why you should be better. People know that. Whether or not it's there to do to become better or not is where the rub is. Once you get over that rub by showing the data translated into performance, I think people are, we now have teams that went from absolutely not to, can we do two team actions a week? And why exactly do we have only one hour? Why can't we do a whole day talking about nothing but our families? and our? So they went from no to let's do this full time maybe. And only because they see that translating into results. So um, it's amazing to start seeing movement and 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 to witness people almost in tears to see that oh my god doing this thing that we thought was horrible and it is about the humans or whatever is not only not useless <laughs> but it's horribly transformational to my dread to my burnout to my not being able to be at my best to all of these um blockers we have in actually being our top performing agile people that's amazing to hear especially people go wanting to talk about this for for a full day you brought up an interesting topic the comparison with the gym now i just literally wrapped up 
an article on how implementing Scrum is the same thing basically as losing weight. There, there are a lot of similarities in there, but the most important thing is the consistency. Like if you look into people's uh, in January 1st, January 2nd, January 1st, they're closed, January 2nd, gyms are filled to the rim with people having their New Year's resolution. They're going to quit smoking. They're going to get into the best shape of their lives. They have the biggest motivational levels. But a month later, gyms are completely empty. What makes it so hard for people to stick to those resolutions, to perse- to persevere, and to keep that consistency? What's so hard? Habit implementation towards. Um, as soon as we understand something is necessary, we then have to hurry up, I think, if we're serious about improvement, and create a habit. I think that's a lot more important. I say this to my kids and stuff. I don't care what gains you make at the gym in the first two months. I care that you go. Even if you go to watch YouTube in a corner, go. Just do that first part. First and foremost, make sure that you've implemented the habit of the regularity and the consistency that you're talking about. That's the bit you have to do. The other parts, growing your muscles, are going to come once you have a habit in place. Almost the same thing, if you wish, with the human work, right? We The way we've constructed our dashboard is... It's a um, work tool. So the way I see it in an ideal world, you'll have your Jira on half your screen and your PNT dashboard on the other half because the reason those tickets moved a certain way are immediately directly reflected on how was our flexibility? Were we impression managing, not afraid to tell each other when we fucked up? What exactly happened, right? So those two things are completely connected, but you're not going to see it on your screen until you realize that this is a a ticket that needs to be on your board every time. It's part of your day-to-day work. Even if you hate the idea of doing the paperwork, the first thing we insist on with every team is to have some form of commitment that they will do three or four actions. That's all we want out of them. Just promise you'll do three or four actions. And then if you hand on heart don't want to do anything anymore, that's on you. You're really like, your resistance is too great. You're in the wrong place mentally. You just want to die. We can't fix depression. It's not, we're not a mental health tool. What we are is a work tool. If you do this consistently three or four times, you start seeing the results that will move you further. So habit implementation is a very well-studied part of positive psychology. It is as simple as getting online, if you wish, and figuring out how many times do I need to repeat this action before my brain goes, oh, this is a thing we're doing. And then the first thing you need to focus on is not how good of an action you do, how many minutes you spend in meditation, how, what kind of, are you listening to Deepak Chopra or are you listening to your um, special app that you found in a corner? That doesn't matter. What matters is that you do the thing enough times that it becomes a habit. So I think the key to consistency is to first and foremost become intentional about creating a habit and do that one first. Awesome. Is there in in that too in the, in the way that you work? Is there anything tied together with positive assimilation, for instance? And I I don't want to uh, um, compare people to dogs, but also to kids. When we're training dogs, or when I'm teaching my kids and helping them go through very scary situations, there's also always something positive connected to those behaviors. Like if you teach a dog how to sit, there is always a treat next to it. If I help my kids through a tough situation, it's always about how good it was for them, how proud they could be for uh, could be of themselves and those kind of things. How do you work with people? Do you, with other people? Do you work with that positive affirmation as well? 
Very good point, right? Because it, there's always been this debate and we've spent a lot of time researching if we should be employing the very classical carrot and stick conversation or not at all. And we've spent, we've had a good few design sprints on the topic of rewards, for instance, which is a, which is a, 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 a mini part of what should be happening. So as we said earlier, what should really be happening, in my view, is that one day, every enterprise will be smart enough to remunerate people and compensate them for this hard work of doing the people work. Before then, and since we are light years away, because for now we are in the um, rock era where people should just go back to their caves um, and, and type from their specific uh, we work places. So we're so far behind, it's it's light years before they will be compensated. But in the meantime, we need to do something so people feel recognized for these efforts. If I'm honest, the data in itself is a lot of recognition. So the fact that they want to see how the smiley face becomes a smiley face from like a sad face or how your um, trend arrows are going up or down in the dashboard, those are really satisfying. It's it's shocking how, how much satisfaction people are deriving from a tiny arrow up or down. <laughs> but beyond that, we spent a long time trying to figure out is there a way to reward them in a different way? And of course, the conversation on rewards is always very complicated because you want to make sure you don't reward the wrong type of behavior. You want to make sure you don't make people produce a behavior with a, with a, with the need of reward only, but because they have some other type of intrinsic motivation. It's a complex topic. That said, we, for instance, eventually settled on a team rewards, which they sometimes agree on together. They're very simple things. We only give people, I don't know, um, I believe for the most part, we give them um, Amazon rewards, which are digital. Here's 10 bucks that you can buy another book with if you've done X, Y, and Z. I don't want to go into what, because it took us a long while to make sure that they can't really, we don't want our people gamifying the dashboard, right? We don't want them to give us answers just to get the Amazon reward because that would be silly. We want them to genuinely see the value in the work, but also get something out of it. Because as you say, reinforcing that behavior positively is really important. So what we do right now are minor um, rewards. But what we say very openly to, to people is, we will batter, we will go to war for you. We will battle the organization for you and we will tell them to bloody pay you for this. We will insist. But until you do the work and you show them that connection between your work and your agile KPIs, we can't make them pay you for it. So it's they know they are implicitly helping the bigger reward and the bigger compensation conversation by bringing their data and doing their work. Beautiful. Now, tying this together with people stepping up and, and uh, being open to themselves, but also being able to uh, work on the team, team performance team level, it requires a level of psychological safety. I mean, if there are leaders or managers around them that will tell them off or will use their, um, their gains for their own commands, how do you get to a level of psychological safety? Maybe we should talk about what you see as what psychological safety is and then how we could go there. Right. So the definition itself is very clear. So we are meant to be in teams where we never feel afraid to speak up. That's the more simplified version of it, meaning we are not afraid of taking risks. We are never impression managing, which is the dark side of psychological safety, meaning we're not 
um, calculating in our heads how do I appear to others? Am I taking a risk in being honest and and and, um, and authentic or not? Am I then having to manage my image to my peers and so on? So as soon as you do any of those things, then psychological safety drops. When you are able to always, always, always speak up, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's difficult, even if it's unpleasant, then you know you have psychological safety. Though that's the very simplified definition, but obviously there's smarter ones out there. Now, with that definition in place, if you have it, and if you have this level of psychological safety, obviously we all know this, you go faster, you can do more things. Just ask Google, you can't have a performance without it. But um, So like you said, what does that mean, right? Well, where where does that leave, I think, is the question. And we, we spent a good, because we've been building this for two and a half, three years, we've seen the definition of team being the first thing you have to have clear before you can have psychological safety. And it's, it, it sounds so basic and like we shouldn't have this discussion, but it mathematically is a discussion every time, even in the smartest of organizations, even in the, the only ones that have it very clear are the ones that are in, also incidentally doing amazingly well. So your Googles or whatever, they're very clear what a team is. Everywhere else, the definition of a team is ridiculously fluid. And they don't know how fluid it is until they end up having to get an invite for that team for our dashboard. And so it, it ends up the, the can of who all is in this team is kicked so far down the line that it isn't until we have to actually send invites that people go like, oh, what do you mean? So is this person that's a support person in our team or not? Um, is this guy that's like a team leader, but kind of a technical leader from somewhere else? Are they in our team or not? Should they see our dashboard? That is literally the moment of truth is, should they see the dashboard together? Should they do a team action together? And it's, it's bedazzling to me every day what people think are or aren't teams. And uh, side note to that, the place where there aren't teams at all is at the top. The higher the top you go, the less of a team there is, the less people you can invite into a dashboard, let's put it that way. So anyways, once you know what psychological safety is, and then once you figure out who you, all your team is, and we have to remember in the agile world that we are very privileged. We very often work in squads, in, in tight-knit situations, but most other places have none of that, right? They have some diffuse line of management, some people you sometimes meet with. There's no, you couldn't tell anyone else at the dinner table who your team is, right? So in our case, because it's clearer, my feeling is everyone in the team that has a direct involvement in the definition of the product is who is a team, right? So that's my, that would be my ideal team is where from product owner to the person that, I don't know, does support, they they are in a team, they can see what's happening because they have ownership of the product. But that's obviously a pipe dream because how many people have real ownership of the product at the team level? It's a whole other conversation. Back to it though. Once you know what psychological safety is, once you know what, what um, the team is, that's when I think the best way to preserve it and to, to work on it with the right tools like ours is to then keep it at the bubble level, at the team level. That is the only thing that's going to kind of ensure that you have the integrity of that dynamic is if what you're doing as a team, once you've taken this work for yourself, is not reported, is not checked, is not used for some manager's presentations and corner, and we are adamant about this. We've lost multiple huge deals over the years because we do not make 
a reporting tool for higher management to parade around. They don't need to know what you are doing at your team level. You're the ones doing the work. You're the ones who need to know. Anyone else is just curious for no reason or is trying to gain, gain some political capital. I don't care what they're doing, but they don't need it. So we don't expose data at any other level. You need to know, you see it, no one else. And that alone, the fact that you can see and you can trust your, your bubble where you do the work, the human work, tightens your understanding of psychological safety and creates more of it because it's a safe space where you can have these conversations about how you feel, where you care about the guy next to you and where you together make things happen. Now, a lot of times when I read articles on psychological safety, the main focus is on teams. So teams have to be psychologically safe, rightfully so. Uh, But how does it work for management and especially for higher management? Is psychological safety just for teams or should they feel empowered and psychologically safe as well? Who isn't in a team? That depends on your definition of a team. Unfortunately, a lot of organizations that I work with still see a group of people simultaneously working as a team. Right. A work group and the team are two different entities. That's exactly what I was hoping to get out of it. Two different entities. You know, you have this, the best example of that is a board right? In a board, people go, made sure that they spent a week thinking what suit they're going to be wearing. That's a lot of emails being exchanged over where lunch is being catered from. Um, there might be an agenda floating about, but maybe not. The vast majority of the time is spent with just some senior human who used to have passion and, and brains. And these days is just going through life, showing up <laughs> and giving a report. That's what happened. I've, I've been in hundreds of board conversations. That is literally what's happening. People show up, they posture to each other, they do all the impression management they can master in one go. They tell each other how amazing they are and what they personally did. Then the other guy stands up and says what they've done. And then everyone goes home. That is a work group at the most. It's mm-hmm. more like a presentation place, right? So what we really want is the opposite of that. We want people who all are working to a certain goal. We want people who have the same willingness to make something happen. A couple is a team. A family is a team. And good teams feel like family, right? That one, where we all are invested in making this thing happen, right? So to bring a work group to a team level, that's the secret ingredient of it is psychological safety. It's very circular of a conversation here. Um, And and to firmly answer your, your question, managers slash tech leads slash uh, anyone else. They're in a team with their own team in terms of what they're making, their product, their baby, the thing that they're together making. And then they might be in a work group with other managers, other people on their line. I even hate the idea of a line. Like that is ridiculous. I don't Anyways, so they are in work groups and they are in teams. They need psychological safety with their team. Do they need it at the work group level? It would be nice. They'd be a more efficient work group level that's closer to a team. They should have it. But if they can't master it, then that's fine. But the same principles apply. Then you become tight enough that you start working on your dynamic and you create psychological safety. If you don't feel you need it because you're only over there to show your suit and posture, then you, you never need psychological safety at the top. No. But if you are any kind of manager, in particular servant leader, you are just one of the team. So you need to have your psychological safety where your team lives. Do you think there's a difference between a leader and a manager? Oh, absolutely. And here's a really fun 
anecdote. My little one is 11. Um, he's on the spectrum and he gets like really focused on various things sometimes, right? One, his latest area of focus is he has found a Coursera um, management course from the London Business School, um, which cost me 100 quid for him to, to attempt to click around. I was convinced he'll drop it immediately, but he seems to have stuck with it for like he's in week two or three or something. And he'll tell anyone who wants to listen what the difference is between a manager and a leader and how it doesn't matter. The difference doesn't matter. And I remember thinking, well, I need to look into this. Why have I let the child, the first the first ever um, kind of rapport he has with the idea of, of business is through something I have not checked. So I spent <laughs> then an hour or two trying to figure out what they're saying. And what they're saying is innovative and super bright, which is from the get-go, they say, there is a big conversation about managers being associated with micromanagement um, and command and control and leaders being people you want to follow because you, you feel inspired and you're, they, they are a beacon of amazingness. So what we would like to say is, and, and this could be genius, but I haven't spent enough time thinking about it. What we would like to say is, let's not focus on that difference. Let's call it whatever you like. Let's call it uh, leadering. Let's call it management if you want, leaders if you want, whatever you want to call it. These things are to us interchangeable because what we're talking about is the way you relate to people if you need to help them be managed. So they very smartly blurred the lines completely, right? So we like in the Agile community to go like, no, stop doing command and control. Do servant leadership. Don't be bloody stupid. This is why you're sinking our ship with your ridiculousness, right? Which is true. It's not untrue. But it's also not helpful because people feel like they have such a humongous leap to make from all. So I'm, I'm a micromanager of these 100 people of 10 teams. It took me an act of God to even get here. I kind of get how people work, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is that I keep an eye on these fuckers, right? So from that to do, to the remove blockers, read the emotions of, and continuously smooth the path of these other humans, it's a huge leap. And you don't see anyone out there awake at 6 a.m. going like, how do we make that leap? How do we make this re-education effort? How do we make sure that these people understand? No one does that. There's no L&D effort in the world currently, I believe. If I'm wrong, I'd love to be wrong. That says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take our micromanagers and transform them into servant leaders. There isn't one. And that tells you how how effed we are if we don't start doing the right things. Yes. Um, it's so we're asking people to make a leap from, remember what we taught you in business school about keeping an eye on them and making sure you have line of sight and they are typing on their terminal and not on Facebook. Well, that thing doesn't work anymore. You need to stop that thing. You need to start reading their faces and you need to put them together in a room and make sure they have what it's a huge to do. And in particular, because most of these people, like, you know, they used to be just a really good technical person that has now become a people manager. And they eventually embraced this counterintuitive, must keep an eye on my people line of thought. And now we're telling them that wasn't even good enough to forget that altogether. Just do the right thing by your humans. It's a huge leap. So yes, there's a difference between managers and, and, and leaders. Yes, there's a difference between command and control and servant leadership. But that difference needs a serious piece of re-education of our humans with enough empathy in mind to go like, this is a big piece. Leading by example is a big part of that as well. Um, 
especially when when teaching courses on Scrum, etc., and I have managers in there, nine times out of ten, I get the question, what the hell am I supposed to do? I'm a manager now. What am I going to do now? I think setting that example, setting that environment of uh, of a safe-to-fail environment as well as psychological safety is the main thing. But where do they start? Sorry about that. It is the main thing. But is it also good enough? No. I have a big bone to pick with the industry that says, here, read this new article and show vulnerability. And now you're doing it. Now, this is it. This is what you need to do to get psychological safety is you need to be a vulnerable leader. Just go ahead and be open, right? And, and I, I shudder to think of all these people who have stepped over their instincts and just showed up and went like, oh, look, I put on 20 pounds over the pandemic. This is me being raw and open. Isn't this amazing? Now we have psychological safety. It's nice and it's fun that we think it would be that simple, but it's very far from the truth because the human leader cannot, whoever they are, however vulnerable, however open, however nice, they can't make their team have a dynamic. The only place that that this can happen at is by the team, through the team, at the team level. So the team needs to work on their own dynamic. That said, yes, they have to start somewhere. But I don't I don't actually think, and this is a good point, I will write an entire article about this and guaranteed eight people are going to want me to die right away. I don't think showing vulnerability is what a, what a team leader needs to do. I think what they only, what they need to do is they need to bombard their people with the facts as to why they need to be doing this work themselves. They need to backtrack. Instead of showing something, they need to show them how they ended up believing that they need to show that so that they themselves start showing up. How do they start with that? Because people will start looking at their at their manager and their leader like, All right, we were supposed to do this thing. We, we've done this course on Scrum, but now we all of a sudden we have to change too. But you're, you're not doing it. Like, how do you match, uh, get on the same page when it comes to the expectations? Have a come to Jesus moment with your people. I keep saying this. I cannot believe that people don't do it. And you know what? I get why they don't do it. There's no time. There's like, there's other things or whatever. Once in a blue moon, you need several things. You need a beach fest, which is what we call one of our plays, which is you all sit down and you structurally complain together about the things that you need to get out of your system. Once you're done, you've parked those. After that, you need a um, rehumanizing exercise. There's no other way to put it. Where now, in particular, after you've been cooped up, sit in the same place physically, if you must, in a spa, if you will, which is very gross, but you might be wanting to do that. Whatever it is, wherever it is, sit in person somewhere and do a proper team relaunch. A come to Jesus. Do we care about this place? Why do we care about this place? Because I'm trying to put my kids through college or because I believe that having green fuel is important. Whatever it is. Why do we care? How do we care? What's our purpose? What do we do? Where is our structure and clarity? And how the hell do we show up for this work? All of us. Why are we doing that? Where are the facts of why I must be bloody vulnerable? Why are the facts of why Scrum works as compared to everything else that we're attempting to do? Go back to Jesus and do these team relaunches as many times as necessary and you'll be golden. Now I'm stuck with the image of being in in a spa with my team. (laughs) I knew knew that it would throw people, but it happened so many times lately that I am having absolute shock. You've had you've been working with teams that went to a spa. Oh yes, absolutely. They absolutely do. Well, I don't think there is much more of a of a level of openness than being all naked together. 
Yeah, men are very willing to do that, but they're not willing to tell each other how many kids they have. <laughs> I've got three and it has been a challenge when it comes to psychological safety as well. My kids, I think that's that's the toughest part of this whole pandemic. My entire family had COVID back in December and we had we were quarantined for two and a half, almost three weeks. COVID in itself, in this family at least, there are people who had it a lot worse. Over here, it was okay. The toughest thing is being stuck together continuously and not being able to just go out for a walk, clear your mind. And I guess that's also what teams sometimes have as well, that they're not able to speak their minds out of fear of repercussions or whatsoever. And it's the same with, with being stuck with kids continuously out of the fear that you're going to lash out set the wrong example uh, that they're going to look at you as a as a as a horrible father which would be my my worst nightmare um but But they'll do that anyway sander you need to accept that they will do that anyhow no matter what you do (laughs) yeah the difference though is that they're stuck with me and other people could change their jobs so that that's that's the upside how do you think this is going to go down because you were talking about the great resignation uh, in in our prior talk um how do what's your maybe that's a better question what's your hope this is going to look like a very complex question i have no exact prescriptive answers i think we we have this is the most bedazzling thing about the pandemic is we have lived a shared reality in very different personal ways So if you look at this, the best example of this is, I think, if you, from the outside, it feels like Europe and America went through different phases, right? At least, at the very least, at different times. We feel like we had three lockdowns. They feel like they had one or none or whatever. Depends on where you are. There's huge dissimilarities. Australians have been locked altogether for 18 months or whatever it was. Um, So very different ways of reacting to it, very different realities, and yet the exact same one, the exact same enemy, the exact same issue same reality, different um, incarnations of it. On top of it, if you layer personal circumstances and you layer your work circumstances and you layer what situation your team happened to be in and then what that team became as the pandemic continued, the, the experiences are as many as people. So it's really difficult to kind of broad stroke anything. I am surprised at the great resignation, how fast it came about, how strong it was, how no matter how many of these articles want to tell us, it doesn't matter how big of a deal it is. I am surprised. I thought it would happen. We all kind of could tell, but the the extent of it, we couldn't tell. I think similarly, we're going to be surprised at the fact that hybrid will undoubtedly be the norm for the rest of eternity. Any company that has knowledge in there to do and technology in there to do will never be able to insist that humans sit down in front of a visible desk in their offices anymore. Not going to happen. They might do because they want to. They might. There's myriad of other complications, but realistically, hybrid will always be the norm. What's more interestingly, more interesting, I think, is has that come with a conversation on flexible or not? 
And many places it hasn't. There's many places came with no conversation. People are just like, a, it's like a, this organizational leaf blown by the wind of whatever is the new regulation that's being announced on TV and they will kind of figure it out afterwards. But they have lovely um, hand sanitizer prepared for the people should they come back to the office. So outside of those people that are doing that, which is bankrupt strategy, everyone else spends some time thinking of it, but not enough thinking of what does flexible really mean? How does that really translate into outcomes? How do we break that down back to our agile principles? What are we really trying to accomplish? And and also, very importantly, now that humans are serious about themselves, their care, their mental well-being, how all does that translate into our team dynamic as well? So because those big conversations haven't happened, the way that people come back or leave or stay is going to depend on all those factors. So I have no overall answer. But what I do know is we have undoubtedly proven the POC of working from home. That's done. We've made an amazing leap that could have taken us two generations otherwise. We have to build on that. All of us, anyone with the, with, with the realization of it has to do their part to build on it and go like, also... I am human because I need X, Y, and Z, and we as a whole, as a a group are human, so we should get X, Y, and Z. It is the time to stake claims in terms of of our humanity and our our work. And if we miss this boat and we settle into a new reality where it's kind of hybrid, kind of not discussed, kind of a mixture in between command and control and no discussion about anything else, we would have missed a serious boat. So if anything, I feel like we have a serious generational, um, if you wish, heavy duty to the next ones. We have to realize on this, like we've, we've, we've got enough momentum that we have to get it over the line where some of this human debt is being reduced. If we've missed the moment, it will be really tough going forward. Oh, that's going to be a challenge. It's almost, it's the same thing with, for instance, the concept of self-management. When we introduce Scrum or any other agile framework, hey guys, you're now going to be self-managing. You're going to be deciding how it works. But no one ever discusses the concept of what self-management really means. And I think that's the same with, with this. How is this going to look like? We don't know because we do not discuss this. I do like the, to see what's going on now where traditionally I was supposed to Tell and sell myself to an organization, right? Why should you guys hire me? And that was going to be the other way around. Okay, uh, dear Duena, uh, we're here as an organization to pitch why you should choose us. It's going to be the other way around, and that I do feel is a is a really cool thing. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, undoubtedly, that's an amazing win. That's one big win, which is a complete. We've we've all walked away from wooden language enough that we can now have some serious conversations. Whether we're going to capitalize on it and do those serious conversations or not remains to be seen. I hope we will. Maybe our listeners are having great ideas of how this should look like. Having that said, where can people find you? As the last question, where can people find you? Where can people interact with you? So I do some speaking still. So there's a, a bunch of it on uh, www. No one says that anymore. Like that's a throwback from the 90s. Um, com. But obviously what I would like people to look at is either our newsletters on LinkedIn, which are um, The Future is Agile on Wednesdays and Chasing Psychological Safety on Monday and Tuesdays, or our website, which has the fundamentals of psychological safety at uh, com. And obviously just chat to us. A demo alone will let you know how far away you are from getting psychological safety in your teams and how far you are from starting to lower your human debt. Awesome. 
Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you very much for being here. Same here. Thanks a lot for having me. I hope this episode was useful to you guys. Again, if you like this stuff, if you like these series, share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your dog, if he's into this stuff. Help this podcast series grow. Now, again, thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Mastering Agility podcast series. A fresh new episode coming to you next week. See you guys then.